Hey, Joe, how's it going? It's going pretty good. So we're here to talk about a piece of art. You chose last time, and it was a great choice. It was Star Wars. We had a great talk about Star Wars and everything related to Star Wars, and I thought we could talk for days, and probably we could, but nobody would listen for days. So I chose the subject today. I think it's a good choice because I think it's an amazing piece of art. And I do think that actually it has legs for discussion, but we will we will see. Okay, so Joe, what do you got for us? What are you bringing? What's, what are you bringing to show and tell? Okay, this is a book that I read two or three years ago, and it stuck with me. I got a couple of reasons for wanting to talk about it. The first reason is that I think it's, a, it's an excellent book and deserves a wider audience. And the second reason is because I think maybe we can talk a little bit about fantastic pieces of art that are at the same time completely obscure <laughs> pieces of art. Mm. You know, because at one time Star Trek was completely obscure. Like I remember, I'm old enough that I can remember when Star Trek was just my thing and nobody else knew about it. It was just a special thing between me and Star Trek. And then to my horror, it became everybody's thing. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, I last, last night I watched a documentary about Kurt Vonnegut, which is excellent. And, I did not realize that nope, like he'd written a whole bunch of novels before he ever got famous and anyone knew who he was. And I was like, that blows my mind. Like hardly anyone read Cat's Cradle until later on when Slaughterhouse-Five became famous. Interesting. Yeah. And I think that speaks directly to what I want to talk about, which is a book called The Mermaid's Tale by an author by the name of D.G. Valdron, who's a Canadian author. He's a lawyer by day and an author by by night and maybe lunchtimes and early mornings. <laughs> but it's an amazing... Do you know the book? I do not know it, no. So you'll have to tell me what the book is basically before we can go any farther. Like, what's the, it's a mermaid's tale, so obviously we're talking mermaids here or selkies or something. <laughs> yeah. it's um, So it's a fantasy? It is a dark, dark fantasy. Very dark. It's basically the main character is an orc. She's a detective in this fantasy land, but it isn't your Disney fantasy land. This is a dark, twisted magic kingdom. A mermaid is is murdered, and the orc is basically hired to solve the, the murder. So it's a detective story. So that's the scaffolding of the whole story. But the world building is incredible. It's very detailed, very well thought out, not just in mechanical terms, but in psychological terms. The psychological component of the book is just as strong as, as the rest of it. Mm, okay. And the, the orc is filled with self-loathing. It's not just uh, self-loathing. Everybody loathes the orc because who, who likes orcs? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So a male orc or a female orc? I... It's a female orc. A female orc. Okay. That's a good choice too. Yeah. And she's not an attractive uh, orc. Or... Yeah. No, I'm, I'm kidding. She's an orc. Yeah. So do you happen to remember the female orc's name? The detective's name? Uh, the female orc, actually. Sorry, I just accidentally knocked over a trombone. <laughs> just mysteriously appeared beside me. <laughs> Wait a minute. Is Kazoo in the room? <laughs> Maybe. The, uh, the orc does not have a name. And it's, and it's written from the first person. Oh, that's fascinating. And is the orc a PI? Is the orc a, like a part of the fantasy detective force? Like, no, it, there's nothing like that. She's basically a, approached by a group who, I guess, kind of runs things and is asked to to do this. I'll just read you the blurb at the back. Oh, okay, good. That's a good idea. Yeah. 
In a city of majesty and brutality, of warring races and fragile alliances, a sacred mermaid has been brutally murdered. An abomination, a soulless Aruk, is summoned to hunt the killer. As the world around the Aruk drifts into war and madness, her search for justice leads her on a journey to discover redemption and even beauty in the midst of chaos. That sounds really good. It is. It's really good. Sounds like it could be like a Guillermo del Toro movie, almost. Oh, absolutely. He would be an amazing choice. The problem, though, is that, and kind of what I want to get into, is that it's basically a completely obscure book. It was put out by a small publisher, which, uh, full disclosure, was also my original publisher. D.G. Valdron was in the same stable of writers as me. You know, it was a small team who put the book together. And he shared the same editor. So my editor, uh, I had two editors, but one of my editors also edited this book and I think did an amazing job. But I'm not plugging it because of that connection, because there was plenty of other books also put out by my publisher that, you know, I like, but I'm, I'm not as passionate about as this one. I'm bringing this one up because I really think it's a terrific piece of work. But to me, it, it presents a, a great question which is why do some works become so well-known and popular and well-regarded while others of the same, in my opinion, the same quality drift into obscurity? Are you looking for an answer for me? Yes. (laughs) Because I really wish I knew the answer. I think, I think the answer is, I I hate to say it, but I think the answer is just, it's luck. (laughs) I I think, uh, you know, things hit at a, at a certain time and place. And if they hit the right people and the right numbers, then they become very popular. And I'm thinking again, again, I just, it's probably lucky. I just watched that documentary last night about uh, Kurt Vonnegut, which is called, uh, it's right from Billy Pilgrim is untethered from time. Oh, that's Slaughterhouse five. That's Slaughterhouse five. Yeah. So Slaughterhouse five was a huge, huge hit for him, but he had spent, basically all of the 60s, working in obscurity, publishing novels. I mean, and my, my one of my favorite Vonnegut novels, Cat's Cradle, was published in that time period. And very few people knew about it, just a few hippies who really liked it. But most people had never heard of it. And then he published Slaughterhouse-Five. It came out in, in uh, 1969. So right when the Vietnam War was getting super ugly. And it was an anti-war book that he'd written. And it just hit at the perfect time so that people said we should read this book to it gets an allegory for what's happening in Vietnam. I don't think it is, but certainly you could draw the comparisons between what was happening in the war in any war and what was happening in Vietnam. And so that book became a huge hit. And then suddenly people went, well, look at this. He's got this huge back catalog of, of stories he's written that are amazing and so they they reissued those at that point. So is it possible that we could have never heard of Kurt Vonnegut? I think the answer is yes. I think if he hadn't released that book at that time, and that's a book that he started writing, you know, in the 40s. He started writing that book in many drafts and in the I don't want to spoil the documentary for people because it's really worth checking out, but there's, you know, a point where he's like he's He's tried it from Billy Pilgrim's perspective. He's got other names for the characters and he's told it from the first person. He's told it from the third person. At one point, he tried to make a play to try and deal with the issues that he experienced. And if the listeners don't know, Kurt Vonnegut was captured in the Battle of the Bulge and as a POW was sent to Dresden and worked in Dresden as a POW 
and then the Allies firebombed the city. So Kurt Vonnegut experienced the firebombing of Dresden. So one of the most horrific episodes of the Second World War. And so, of course, that had an impact on him. And what probably one of the reasons he's such a great writer is that he's he's got sort of this darkness that he had to deal with through most of his life. And he, of course, he chose humor. That was his solution on how to deal with it. So that book, if he had been able to write that book faster, again, it probably would have been an unknown book because it wouldn't have hit the public at the moment when it did. Right. So I, I do think a lot of it just happens to be luck. Like if it does something hit at the time when it's going to have a really wide impact. So a book like the one you're describing, I don't know. It sounds good, but is it, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's probably just as good as. Is it timely? Is it timely? Yeah. There's, so it's, it's not just timeliness, but I think timeliness is part of it. Like mm. is, does it, does it strike a chord that really matters to people at that moment when they pick up the book and read it. I think that's part of it. Hmm. But what do you got? Well, as usual, you have made me want to go in 17 different directions. All right. <laughs> so first of all, the parallel between Vonnegut, I think, and this author, I think there are, there are some parallels. Now, I don't know D.G. Valdron personally in the sense that I've never actually met him in the in the real world. We are virtual acquaintances. We have interacted online. So I know a little bit about him. And I don't want to say too much because it's not Valdron himself that I want to talk about. It's, it's you know, his book that I want to champion. But I think I'm comfortable enough in saying that although he does not have, you know, he never fought in the war like Kurt Vonnegut or anything, he shares some of the same darkness, I think. He, this is a man who, for whatever reason, understands that this is a world that consists of great evil and potentially great goodness, which is something that I believe that there is those extremes and that I try to capture in my work, but that I don't believe that I captured anywhere near as well as he did in this book. <laughs> so there's that. And the other thing that you had mentioned about timing and, and luck, at my day job, which I'm not supposed to mentioned much in my extracurricular activities, but it's a media organization, I'll say. When I was involved in the creation of art and entertainment for that organization, there was always, it was always considered to be stronger if you were relating it to something that was actually happening in the world. Mm. I didn't necessarily agree with that at the time. I thought that art could stand on its own merits because obviously you can you can write something like Slaughterhouse Five, you know, which relates to the the Vietnam War, but then thirty years later, it's still a great book. And now it relates to another war. I mean, it's it's got a timelessness to it a little bit because of it's it, of the way he wrote it. Yeah the the war because there's a war in the Mermaid's Tale. It's that's part of the backdrop. And I think about the current situation in Ukraine and the issue with Russia and the Russian soldiers in Ukraine have been referred to as orcs. <laughs> yeah. Probably easier for us on this this side of the the conflict to to cast them in that mold. So they are they are orcs, and and now the main character in, in the Mermaid's Tale is a is an orc reviled by by everyone, including the orc herself. And has to go and kind of champion the mermaid who died and the rest of the mermaids who are mourning her. And there's vampires as well and all sorts of other. But he does such a twist on each of these characters. It's such a fresh take on all of that. 
and nobody knows about this book, and they need to. I know it's it's a shame. It's it it, it happens. I mean, dare I say it's happened to maybe two of the people talking today that not many people know about our books, and they probably should. And I think for the reader, I think it's a great time to be a reader because of that. There's so many great things out there right now, but it's finding them. How do you find them, right? Like, how do you find new things that are great like this? For me, I think what's cool about it is that it's something that moved you. And I, so what specifically about the book moved you, do you think? Apart from sort of like the intellectual activity of like, why isn't this more popular? Which I, I get all the time when I read stuff or watch things that I don't understand why this wasn't a bigger hit. But why that story? What about the Ark's journey appealed to you so much? It was the, the self-loathing on the part of the Ark and her trying to go about her life and, and go about her work and dealing with that. At the same time, I think it spoke to something in the human condition. I don't think I have more than the, the usual amount of self-loathing, <laughs> but I can relate to the idea. Every now and then, you know, we'll do something, you know, reprehensible or, or something and feel bad about ourselves, you know, some fleeting self-loathing. But this orc <laughs> hates herself all the time. And she hates herself because society has, has told her to hate herself. I think that doesn't just speak to individuals out there. It speaks to whole swaths of society that the larger society has decided we will revile you for whatever reason. And especially in the the world that we live in now, which everybody talks about how increasingly polarized it is. And there are factions out there who make no secret about how much they revile other factions. And I just, to me, that just is the, antithesis of how I think and how I want the world to be. Mm -hmm. So Valdron captures that, I think, very well in this book. And it's it's a part of the energy that the electricity that drives it forward. Yeah, it's, that's a really it. And it's a when when was this book put out? Because I, I think that might be important too for listeners to know. Yeah, it was put out um, relatively recently. I have it here and I'm just going to look it up. Like, yeah. like the last 10 years or oh, so? Oh, yeah, 2016. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I think that that theme is very re- – I think you're, I, you're totally right. That theme is, is very relevant these days. And I, too, am very worried about this othering that people want to do. There's a human nature side of it that unfortunately exists. But I, I think the vast majority of us share more experiences than we don't share experiences. We're all humans. Yes. We're all going to die. Speak for yourself. You're not going to die? I hold out hope, as all humans do, until proven otherwise. <laughs> After I'm dead, then I'll be like, oh, okay, I guess I guess I was going to die. But right up until that final second, I'll be holding out possibility, I think, as uh, as all humans do. I'm trying to remember where, where I saw that recently, but that was I saw that in the movie recently where the, the person was saying, yeah, everyone... At the, it's the, it's always a look of surprise when you die, when people die, because everyone up to the very last moment is not expecting it to happen. <laughs> you know what? I was doing exactly the you same know? thing as you. I'm like, <laughs> that's I'm I'm relating something that I just saw in a show. And what was that show? And as you were asking the question, I realized it's the the premiere episode of the new Star Trek. Exactly. That's it. I was waiting for you to get it. 
<laughs> which which is fabulous, by the way. But I don't want to get distracted again on Star Trek and Star Wars. Yes. Well, it all comes back to Star Trek and Star Wars in the end. Of course. And, you know. <laughs> no, let's not go there. Uh, I do think the idea of the of the othering is, is a problem. I mean, it's just so baked into what's happening in culture now. But it's such a false idea, really. The, the fact is we're basically – we're not the same, obviously, but we're all in the same boat, you know? Yes, yes, exactly. We're all in this little tiny craft together. And if we don't get along, we won't be in the craft for as long. It's not going to be very much fun. Yeah, I it, it does upset me. But I, I also often use the analogy of or the metaphor of a boat. You know, and I always think that, man, we are who's operating this boat because they're piling us right into an iceberg or over a waterfall or something. When if we just work together and got along? I think it's the guy running the gift shop that's running the boat right now. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> he just wants us to buy as, as, as many tchotchkes as possible and be distracted by, by them so that we don't notice the iceberg. There is so much more truth in what you just said, I think, than – I mean, it sounds like a joke, but I think it's, I think it's the truth. The other thing I want to say about the uh, the othering business is uh, so many of us like animals, you know, but what could be more other than an animal? But we can get along great with animals and respect animals and whatnot. And and yet we turn our own species into other. It doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's like I said, it's just really upsetting. I recently saw somewhere a story about a police officer being interviewed. And he's talking about how many more people he's having to arrest for shoplifting food. And there was this the line he it was like a throwaway line he said and they're like real people too oh they're not just like homeless people that I'm arresting I'm like oh my god <laughs> they're like real people it's too. Just like oh my god <laughs> they're like real people that's that's like that's othering at its at its worst right it's just yep. to, they're not even a human being anymore because they don't have a home yeah I. I was really disgusted by that police officer's comments. I think that's why it's such a relevant topic. And I, it doesn't surprise me the book is fairly recent because I think we've been confronting it more in our daily lives. Maybe not as much in the last two years during like the lockdowns and so on because we're not meeting people as much. But certainly we see it on our media a lot more it's, and the internet especially. This kind of vicious othering by one group against another. Yeah, and how will it end? Well, I mean, it ends one of two ways, right? Either we get over it and we start to <laughs> I hate to bring Star Trek back into it, do the Star Trek thing and actually work together, which is really what that is about, is how important it is for us to recognize that we're all of the same boat and we need to work together. Or we don't, and and uh you have conflicts and civil war and and if we can't work together, we're certainly going to destroy the ecosystem of our planet. We might not destroy all life just with global warming, but certainly we have the ability to do that. If we have a nuclear war, that would happen. So if you don't get past that othering, then then yeah, you're, the consequences could be pretty dire. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's not very funny, <laughs> but I, I do think it's, it's a possibility. And in some ways, I see progress too. Like, I don't know if you've thought that at all in the last 10 years, but I certainly see progress in the sense that, you know, for example, the acceptance of, of trans people and that whole thing. I mean, 
even 10 years ago, I, if you'd asked me that that was going to start to happen, and I know there's a huge backlash and there's a group of people that are othering trans people. Some of them are very famous, but if, you know, if you talked to me 10 years ago, I don't think I would have predicted where we're at now hmm. with that specific issue. I completely agree with that. That That is shocking and surprising in a good way. And here in Canada, for to use another example, would be the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and, and how there is – now, I don't see it in everyone, but I certainly see it in a lot of my colleagues, a real acceptance of those ideals and – like not just an acceptance of them, an idea that we're going to have to work towards those ideals. And again, if you talk to me even 10 years ago, I don't think I would have said, yeah, that's going to happen. That's So I do see progress, but you know, it's two step forward, one step back. Do you think that there's a connection actually? Because we are seeing acceptance in those areas mm. and it seems there seems to be uh, an increased momentum that maybe some of the um the the anger that we're seeing is just is a response to that it's a natural reaction like maybe this is all unfolding naturally i i think there's something to that um do you do you listen to malcolm gladwell at all he's got a podcast i think it's called revisionist history I haven't heard his podcast, but I've certainly uh, read his some of his work, seen his TED Talks. and Okay. I mean, I, I, I think you have to take his work with a grain of salt because he's trying to do a popular thing. But but that said, he had a point about, about the election of Trump that I thought was really kind of interesting, which was Trump was a natural pendulum reaction to Obama in the sense that, okay, we've elected a black person to be the president, so therefore we're not racist – so therefore, we can elect this very racist person. Hmm. And we're not necessarily going to be racist because we've already proved that we're not, right? We've elected Obama. Huh. That sounds right to me. That sounds like there's something to that. So I think you might be right that there might be just a, a push and pull in these kinds of things. And what happens next really depends on what people do and what side wins the information war essentially, or maybe that, 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 that there are sides, particularly, I think, in some of these things, like around racism and acceptance of trans people, I actually do kind of think there are sides. And I think there's a compassionate side. And I think there's a side that's not compassionate. So I do think that there is a bit of tug of war going on. And that's maybe why we are so much more aware of it right now. Hmm. What do you think? Well, yeah, because and, I, and I want to take it back to the mermaid's tail because I think he explores a lot of this tension in that book in 2006. Obviously, he was writing it before 2016, so he wasn't seeing the same necessarily. You know, had uh, Valdrin still been writing this book after Trump was in, it would have been an even darker <laughs> book, <laughs> possibly yeah. exploring this kind of stuff. I should mention as well, actually, because I, I owe it to anybody who potentially picks up the book. They need to know that, that it is a very violent book in places. Our first episode, we talked a little bit about Thomas Covenant, an incident that happens a third of the way through the, the first book that was tough for some readers to get past. There's a similar incident in this book, mm. which actually is even far more intense, but it's not at all gratuitous. It completely speaks to the character and the milieu and... It's it's a part of the book's DNA. There's no getting around it, but people need to know that it's in there. I think that's wise to to let people know that before they, they encounter it. Just cold. Yeah. 
At the same time, though, I don't want to put people off the book. I want to put people onto the book. No, of course not. No, <laughs> so. no it's it's. <laughs> I think I. I mean, I. I think we're probably both hopeful that we'll have uh, listeners who are like us in terms of being fairly omnivorous and being able to take these kinds of things in the way that they're intended. Yes, I think so. And that there should be no books that are banned. I do love the idea that the there's all these book bannings happening and and that's just making them fly off the shelves. <laughs> there's something wonderful about that. Oh yeah. Yeah. The irony. Yeah, that's great. Now, do you like in the the books that you read? So all the stuff that you were just uh, talking about, the increased acceptance of things that were not societal norms in the past, um and then the the reaction to it and that kind of real world stuff. Do you like that in your entertainment and fiction? I think you used the word that is the important word when you're describing The Mermaid's Tale. It has to be organic. I don't like it when it feels like the author is preaching at me Uh, and trying to make a quote, a point. But if it comes naturally out of the story, then yeah, I I do actually like uh, one of my favorite Ursula K. Le Guin books is The Left Hand of Darkness. And it deals with the idea of gender pretty explicitly and I really like that book. And like that book doesn't exist without that idea. Yes. The story itself is based on those ideas and confronting them. And and I really love that book. So yeah, I like it when it's baked in and it's organic. I don't like it when it feels like it's layered on top. I don't want to point anything out specific, but I do sort of see that a lot now. I see it happening a lot. I was like, that doesn't feel like that's part of, it feels like they've got, well, we need, we need to have this representation. And I, well, I understand that's important. Maybe in, in fictional enterprises, it's not always the best choice. It's not organic. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's actually something that also needs to be said about this book, The Mermaid's Tale, is that there's an authenticity to it. You can't manufacture that kind of authenticity this is this came from some place real and it informed every page paragraph sentence and word in the whole book mm-hmm. there's nothing grafted onto it and you're absolutely right cuz you do see that in some popular entertainment probably both of us maybe when we've been writing have thought oh i got to put something deep and meaningful in in this writing but if it doesn't come from some place real and organic it probably isn't going to work. Yeah, that, I, that's been my experience as a writer. I find if, if I try to make a point that I think is important, and I just it, I try to put it in there, and it's not coming out of the story, then it really it has to go. So luckily, I cut them, and my editor is really good, and he says, "No, it's not. That's preachy. You can't put that in there." And that's great because, <laughs> you, first of all, your first duty as as a writer is to be entertaining. Really is. I'm totally with Vonnegut on that one. That's a good question, actually. Is it? So, okay, so where does it come down between educating and and entertain or provoke a catharsis or uplift or, and does there have to be a first one? Well, that's still entertaining. I guess it really depends on how you define the word entertaining, but I like uh, Vonnegut's quote about use the time of a stranger in such a way that they don't feel like their time was wasted. As long as they feel like they've been, their time has been spent well, then I, I, I feel like they've been entertained in some way. They've been, they've learned something or they've got an experience they wouldn't have had, or it's just maybe feeling good about the happy ending that you provide, or maybe feeling frustrated because you didn't, give them a happy ending and it's an ambiguous ending and 
and they want to talk about that. That's all a form of entertainment in my mind. So all of those things are possible. But I do think that you don't want to read something and feel like you're just being preached at or someone's just in their own thing and they're not thinking about the audience at all. I, I mean, I don't think you should write specifically just for the audience. You have to also please yourself. But at the same time, if you're only pleasing yourself and you don't care about the audience, then is there any point to writing? Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. You put me in mind of what I've heard about comedians, uh, stand-up comedians, that certainly when they when they start out and at a certain level of, of their careers, not that I'm an expert in stand-up comedians. I never have been a stand-up comedian. I know some, but my understanding is in the beginning, you know, they want to make the audience laugh. But then some of them later in their career, people like Andy Kaufman and uh, and I think Jim Carrey to a, a certain extent, became more interested in experimenting mm. when they were up there on the stage. And it was less about gratifying the, the audience and more about experimenting with the form. And I, I think there's a place for that. Totally. I get that. And that could be entertainment too. Like you can just <laughs> watching Andy Kaufman do something bizarre is pretty entertaining because you know what he's, if you know what he's doing, if you don't know what he's, what he's doing, you're coming expecting something else, then yeah, it could be pretty frustrating and not entertaining. But if you get that he's an artist and he's trying to accomplish something new and different then right. Then yeah, I think that's, that can be, that can be entertainment too. Another one I would think of would be George Carlin. I love George Carlin, but I would say near the end of his career, he was just preachy. He wasn't funny. He stopped being funny and he still had to make a joke there and there. He had to make me laugh a little bit, but you know, that's just me. <laughs> well, I can reassure you that there is, I don't think there's anything preachy about the mermaid's tale. It's just uh, laying it out. This, this character trying to survive in a horrific world. And there's no advice really. I don't think about how to survive in that horrific world. It's just surviving. And, uh, and trying to solve this, this mystery. I got to say, I really like the idea of, of a character dealing with self-loathing because I, I, I've, I've written on that topic and it's, it's one that's really current. We have a lot of people trying to conform to some kind of ideal that is totally unrealistic. And I think that is a very current topic too. So it sounds like a good book for people to be reading. Yes, yes. I should also know that there's one curiosity in the book that I'd like to ask him about someday. And that is, there are no chapters in the book. It's it's not broken into chapters. He just dispenses with that. Oh, that's like the first book. The first books didn't have chapters. Robinson Crusoe originally did not have chapters. I did not know that. There's natural breaks because I think it was an epistolatory novel, but that was added later. Yeah, the idea of a chapter. So that's there's logic to that. Right. So there was my pick. The Mermaid's Tale. The Mermaid's Tale. By D.G. Voldren, Canadian author. Cool. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. That was, that was interesting. It's on my list now of things to read. <laughs> <laughs> Good. There you Good. go. Recreative, a 
podcast about creativity. Talking to creative people from every walk of life about the art that inspires them. And you're probably wondering, how can I support this podcast? I am wondering, Joe, how can I support this podcast? I mean, apart from being on it. There's no advertisements in this podcast. There's no tip jars. There's nothing about like buying us a coffee or anything like that. But there is a way that you can support us. And what is that? They could buy our books. And how do they find us? Recreative.ca. Don't forget the hyphen. There's a hyphen in there. Re-creative. I took your line, sorry. Well, because I stole your line. <laughs> so yes, re-creative.ca. Jenks. Oh yeah, you're, that, I stole your line again. <laughs> As well, if you like what you've just heard, you could consider subscribing to the podcast. And leave a comment if you like it. Thanks for listening. Spread the word.